morning and welcome to Preston Hollow Presbyterian Church and this 11 o'clock hour of worship. It's a joy to be with you all this morning. I'd also like to extend a special welcome to those of you who are worshiping by means of the radio or the live stream. I heard this morning we even have someone live streaming from Italy. So wow, we're international church this morning. If you are at the end of your aisle, if you would grab the friendship pad and pass that down the aisle, that's a means that we use to get to know one another, to see who's in worship and greet each other by name. Additionally, if you are new or newer to Preston Hollow, we invite you to fill out a connect card. You can find those in your pews. Um, just give us a little bit of information about yourself and that way we can be in touch with you. On the back of the Connect card, there's also a prayer request card. If you have a joy or a concern or something you are in need of prayer for, we invite you to fill out one of those cards and drop it in the offering plate later in the service. A couple of announcements this morning. Beginning tomorrow, we are starting a new Bible study, the Pastor's Bible Study. It will meet Mondays at 7 a.m. and 12.15. You can just come to one. You don't have to come to both. We are studying the book of Exodus, and a pastor will lead each week, so come and enjoy community and fellowship and study together. Additionally, next Sunday evening, we have an exciting, huge event. The Neighborhood Barbecue will be happening on the north end of the building. We will be worshiping outside on the soccer field at 5, and then 6 o'clock we will have barbecue, bounce houses, cupcake decorating, all sorts of fun for your entire family so please make plans to join us and invite a friend along with you. At this point, I'd like to invite Matthew forward to give one final announcement. Thanks, Jesse. Uh, good morning. Will you raise your hand if you have ever been a teacher at Preston Hollow Presbyterian School, had a child at Preston Hollow Presbyterian School, or have a friend in your family who has ever attended that school? Raise your hand. Today is, thank you very much for raising your hands and participating. We won't do that in the sermon. But I, I want to, today is Preston Hollow Presbyterian School Sunday. This is the Sunday where we get to give thanks for the many ways that God has been alive and at work on that end of the campus every day of the week. And so we have two students, a, a student and a former student, um, who are going to share with us their experience and thank us for our continued ministry there. I want to thank Patty McNally and our teachers who um, go about their work tirelessly, even though sometimes they're tired, tirelessly um, about their work and their ministry every single day. At this time, I want to invite Emma Mullen and um, Madeline Yarborough forward to share with us. When I came in kindergarten, I thought Preston Hollow was just another school. My kindergarten teacher helped me to learn to read. The teachers gave me just the right amount of work so that I never realized that I had ADHD or that I struggled with writing and reading. In second grade, I really started liking to read. Thea Stilton books were my favorite books because there was a group of girls that solved mysteries and traveled the world. They pulled me into the books. Now I feel like I can learn anything because my reading never holds me back. Without reading, I would not have met all the interesting characters. Those books have taken me to amazing places. At PHPS, the classes are smaller and the teachers go slower, which made learning to read easier for me. In fourth grade, PHPS started a writing program that helped to organize your thoughts. Using this writing program, I planned and wrote my own short story. 
In fifth grade, Miss Smith helped me learn more about writing and choosing topics. My writing became more detailed and interesting. Now I feel confident in my writing. One of my favorite memories of PHPS was going to Mo Ranch in sixth grade. At Mo Ranch, my classmates and I learned to work together to set and accomplish goals. I learned that I was good at seeing a solution and making suggestions to help the group solve a problem. At school, one of my favorite subjects was hands-on equations, which taught us algebra in fourth and fifth grades. It helped me understand that algebra was not that hard. I just needed to persevere and keep working. The confidence and skills that I have gained at Preston Hollow will make me successful in completing the work and challenges of seventh grade and beyond. Part of that confidence allows me to get up here to speak to you and tell you what a wonderful school Preston Hollow is. It is not just another school. It is a school where everyone learns no matter what their difference is. Thank you, Preston Hollow Presbyterian Church, for supporting our school. Good morning. My name is Madeline Yarbrough, and I'm a graduate of the Preston Hollow Presbyterian School, class of 2007. Preston Hollow did many things for me and contributed to my successes today. Most importantly, this school helped build my confidence back after I was called many names, put down by teachers, and ignored. Coming from a well-known elementary school in Dallas, where my family was incredibly invested in the program, as well as having an aunt that taught there made leaving one of the hardest decisions my parents had to make for me. My parents were unsure of the choice they had made, but knew keeping me there would not, would not hurt me, but it would really help me by moving. My first day of fourth grade, walking into Preston Hollow, I was anxious, angry, and unsure of what I was about to embark upon. By the end of the day, I left with my head held high, confident and looking forward to the new year. I was excited and hopeful about learning again and had the best chicken fried steak I'd ever had in my life at lunch. <laughs> I met kind and loving teachers who would eventually become lifelong friends. Preston Hollow taught me that confidence doesn't come from the reassurance of others, but from within. This institution taught me how to persevere when learning was difficult at times. Preston Hollow taught me that although I might have dyslexia, I can't or I give up is never an option. But instead, I will keep trying became my new mantra. I was devastated to leave PHPS, and the thought of going to another school was unimaginable. Once I went on to my new school, I was one of the only kids that knew how to adapt easily because I was equipped with the proper tools and organizational skills to be successful in the classroom. PHPS was the hardest school I've ever been to. It challenged me, pushed me, and prepared me not only for high school and college, but for life in general. I am now 24 years old and a graduate of the Booker T. Washington High School for the Visual and Performing Arts with a major in dance. 
I went to college and graduated from the University of Arizona in four years with a GPA of 3.4 with the major of arts, media, and entertainment. I started a small business while in school and just celebrated my one year anniversary at a job where I am one of the top leading employees in the nation. I can honestly say that I credit my family and Preston Hollow Presbyterian School for giving me hope, courage, and the tools I needed to go out into the world and become a creator of change. Thank you all for your time today. It's been a pleasure to be able to speak with you. Okay, now raise your hand if you know someone who went to Preston Hollow Presbyterian <laughs> School. Thank you, Emma and Madeline, for sharing your stories with us. And thank you for the many ways uh, that you all have continued to support our school on the other side of the campus. And Patty, thank you for your leadership. Friends, this is the day that the Lord is still making. For we believe in a God who's alive and at work in the world. So let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us prepare our hearts and minds to worship holy God. Jesus, friend and Lord. 
Friends, please join me in our responsive call to worship. Like a parent running to greet the prodigal son, God always welcomes us home. No matter how far we travel, God always welcomes us home. There is no place we can go where God's love cannot reach us. God always welcomes us home. Welcome home, children of God.
hopes of reconciliation with God and with one another, let us join our hearts and voices in confession. God of boundless love, you ask us to share your love with friend and foe alike. You call us to show forth love to the unlovely, persecutors and bullies, enemies and evildoers. We struggle with this inconceivable mission, for it often seems hopeless, impractical, and unsafe. Like Ananias, who laid hands on Saul, prepare us to reach out in love to our enemies. Remove the scales from our eyes and help us to see others with the love of Christ. Amen. Because of God's mercy, we are set free from our sins. We are set free to love and be loved. Friends, hear and believe the good news of the gospel. We are saved by grace through faith. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Living Spirit, through this scripture, open our eyes to see the world with love and compassion. Open our ears to hear a word of hope and encouragement. Open our minds to be challenged and compelled to act. Open our hearts to respond with thanksgiving. Spirit, move through this scripture that we might be open to new life. In Christ we pray. Amen. So if you're uh, visiting with us this morning, another word of welcome, or maybe uh, you've been in and out of town and welcome back, you need to remember and be reminded or invited that we are picking up in a conversation that we've been having for a month now, exploring the first part of our new vision statement, trusting all belong to God. And uh, we started uh, four weeks ago with this sermon series, and the first thing that we have to trust in order to trust that all belong to God, is that we, in fact, belong to God. And then the next week, uh, we had to trust that uh, those who are outside of our circles, outside of our families and social circles, even our nationalities and even our religions, a Syrophoenician woman of Greek origin, Greek birth, she belonged to Jesus. And last week, we, uh, we had to wrestle with uh, those in our families those in our families that we struggle to trust belong to God. We, we wrestled with Joseph and his brothers. 
And this week, um, we struggle with a really, maybe the, the hardest one of all. What about our enemies? What about those people that we hate? Do we trust that even those folks belong to God? I got to tell you, uh, one of the great privileges and honors of this life, this calling as a Presbyterian minister, are the diverse experiences that I get invited to almost every week, but this week takes the cake. I've been invited in some really diverse places this week, and in, almost in every setting to a T, this question of belonging has come up. How do we belong to one another? What does it mean to belong to one another? I was with Linus and Joyce Wright. They were here at 9.30 this morning over at the DISD administration building this past week where they have voted to name that building in honor of Linus's life and legacy. Linus knows what it means to wrestle with belonging. He helped this city integrate in our schools. That's a question that I heard at DISD even this week. What does it mean for us to belong to one another in this city? I was uh, invited to go to the Momentus Institute conference. Momentus is the, the offshoot of the Salesmanship Club. They have a, a, a national conference every year. I got invited to go with some of our Preston Hollow Presbyterian School teachers. The theme of the conference was about belonging. What does it mean to belong with our, our myriad of backgrounds, our diversity of backgrounds? What does it mean for, for teachers to understand that they belong to their students and to create a culture of belonging in a classroom when your students may be knuckleheads? <laughs> that was me when I was in fourth grade. Sarah might say it is still me. <laughs> But the inverse is true. What does it mean for students to create a place for even their teachers to belong in these classrooms? Then I got a text message on Wednesday this week from my good friend Richie Butler. Richie's taken me in from the first day I've been here at Preston Hollow, been in Dallas. Richie uh, is the senior pastor of the St. Paul United Methodist Church downtown. Right across the street is Booker T., Richie texted me this week and he said, Matthew, I want to invite you to St. Paul United Methodist Church on Saturday because, man, I need your support. There's some folk in my community that don't feel like they belong and they live in this city. And they're hurt, they're in pain. And so I want to invite you to St. Paul United Methodist on Saturday at noon, and I want you to listen to the pain of the voices of people's long silence because they don't feel like they belong in this city. They, in fact, feel like they're pawns in this city. And Matthew, I'm not asking you to do anything. I just want you to come and listen. And so yesterday, I went down to St. Paul United Methodist. And I was deeply impacted by voices from folks who feel like they don't belong. What does it mean for us to belong to one another? 
As Christians, the question then leads us to the hardest question of all, the question that we have to wrestle with, particularly this week, when the news has revealed just how deep and adamant our divisions are. How do we belong to one another as a nation, but further than that? Understanding that belonging to one another doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want to one another. Our actions have consequences, but as Christians, the question is this. As we seek to belong to one another, how do we hold one another accountable to the standards of love and faithfulness? that we read about in scripture, that we see in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, as Christians, the question then leads us to the hardest question of all. Does this standard of love and faithfulness extend even to our enemies? That's the question before us this day. That's the question that this text demands that we wrestle with. So we turn to uh, Acts, the book of Acts, the ninth chapter. We're going to read the first 17 verses. It's about a guy named Saul. You may know him as Paul. But it's Paul in his former life. His name's Saul. Listen for the word of the Lord to all of us this day. Meanwhile, Saul was spewing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest seeking letters to the synagogues in Damascus. If he found persons who belonged to the way, whether men or women, these letters would authorize him to take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. During the journey, as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven encircled Saul. Saul fell to the ground. And he heard a voice asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you harassing me? And Saul asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are harassing, came the reply. Now get up and enter the city. You will be told what you must do. Those traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the voice, but Saul, no one. After they picked Saul up from the ground, he opened his eyes, but he couldn't see. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he ate and drank nothing. In Damascus, there was a certain disciple of Jesus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him a vision. Ananias, and he replied, yes, Lord. The Lord instructed Ananias, go to Judas' house on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias enter and put his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias countered. Lord, um... Lord, I've heard many reports about this man. People say that he has done horrible things to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's here with authority 
from the chief priest to arrest everyone who calls on your name. And the Lord replied to Ananias, go. This man is the agent I have chosen to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias went to the house. He placed his hands on Saul. And he said these words. Brother Saul, the Lord sent me Jesus. Jesus, who appeared to you on the way as you were coming here, he sent me. So you could see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. You hover here in this very sanctuary, O God. Just as you hovered over the waters of creation, so we ask, O God, you would reach across the ages and breathe new life into these ancient words that you would create afresh and anew this very day that these words might be your word to us here and now and we ask O oh God that you would breathe new life into the words of my mouth and that you would breathe new life into the meditations of all of our hearts that all would be acceptable and pleasing to you O oh God our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I have a friend who grew up every summer going to summer camp for two weeks. She loved everything about summer camp. She loved uh, spending time for two weeks with friends that she had made who lived across the country. She loved camp songs. I'm glad someone out there does. <laughs> she loved dances at camp. She loved, loved the late night talks. She loved the friendships that she made in, in the cabin among her bunkmates. She quickly learned, and one of the things she most loved were the friendships at camp. When you made a friendship at camp, you were thick as thieves. And if anybody uh, tried to cross you or your friends at camp, it was just known that you weren't messing with one person, you were messing with your friends too. My friend uh, this week said that she remembers vividly one summer at camp that, that uh, uh, another cabin had become the enemy cabin. And for a week, they traded pranks back and forth until one day, my friend and her cabin snuck into their enemy cabin uh, when they were out swimming one day, and they brought with them into their enemy cabin uh, nair hair removal. Y'all remember that? They brought nair hair removal with them into the enemy cabin, and they unscrewed the tops to all of their enemies, unscrewed the tops of their shampoo. Oh. And they put that nair hair removal in every bottle of shampoo. 
as my friend recounted this story to me this week, she says, well, maybe in looking back, we went a little too far. (laughs) You know, maybe we overstepped the line. (laughs) But I'll tell you this, they learned their lesson. They didn't mess with us another summer at camp. (laughs) Isn't that what we all want? Don't we all want to teach our enemies, the people from the other cabin, don't we want to teach them a lesson? Who do you consider to be your enemy? Who do you consider to be your enemy today? You know, I've walked around uh, this week and I've asked people that question, and many people struggle. Even this week, to name who their enemy is, they say, you know, I haven't really thought of in terms of uh, people as my enemy in a very long time. As adults, we, we don't use that language very often, except maybe for next weekend, you know, Texas OU. <laughs> the language of enemy has gone out of fashion, but whether we name it or not, We regularly think about people as if they are our enemies. In today's terms, enemies are people who threaten our way of life. In a real or a perceived way, enemies are people or groups of people who threaten our safety. Or even worse, who threaten our children's safety. Enemies are people who might destroy everything that we have uh, worked to build. But in this week of deep pain and division, enemies are people that we easily demonize because they vote or believe differently than we do. You know, we may not talk about enemies much anymore, but the Bible sure does. And in our passage this morning, Saul is the quintessential enemy of the early Christian community. Saul has threatened the Christian's way of life, their safety, and their very survival. And he's done this repeatedly. This is not just like a one-time event for Saul. He sort of made it a habit, a way of life. Saul doesn't like Christians. He hates them. He threw believers into jail right and left, voting for their execution whenever he could. He stormed their meeting places. He bullied them into cursing Jesus. He was a one-man terror, obsessed with obliterating these believing people. That's not my color commentary on Saul. These are his literal words. From later in the book of Acts. Saul has every intention of getting rid of the Christian community. Because Saul feels like they are threatening his belief system. Both sides feel threatened by the other. But here's the difference. Saul had all the power. Saul had the power of the Roman Empire that was fully behind him to enact violence against Christians. Any violence that he deemed necessary. Here's the hard thing to accept about the vastness of God's love. Even in the moments when Saul was threatening the survival of the early church. 
Saul's hatred didn't change the fact that Saul belonged to God. Ugh. God didn't write Saul off as a lost cause. God didn't smite Saul. God does something utterly remarkable. I think it's utterly remarkable. God reaches out to Saul and calls him by name. Now, let me just say this as a quick aside. If I were God, I may reach out to Saul and I may call him a name. It wouldn't be his God-given name. I might have a few names for Saul. If I were God, I may just smite Saul. I don't don't know about you, but for me, there are some people in this world that I would like to smite. And I think they deserve it. Aren't you glad that I'm not God? Aren't you glad that you're not God? God's love is too vast. It's what makes God God and us not. It's God's mercy that is all-encompassing, that defines the very nature of who God is. God, instead of smiting Saul, instead of calling him names, God calls Saul his name, knocks Saul down, blinds him for three days. He totally deserved it. Those are small potatoes. He doesn't write Saul off, but rather God reaches out and pulls Saul in. That's the very nature of who God is. Many of us uh, have heard Saul's conversion story probably heard it preached. It's an incredible story, but I think the real hero of this passage, especially in the day and time in which we live, in the week that I had, the real hero is Ananias. It's Ananias' faithfulness that I believe speaks to us today. Ananias was one of the people that, was, that Saul was out to kill. Saul had just killed Ananias' friend Stephen executed him. Ananias knew that Saul was uh, coming to Damascus with imperial authority to arrest anyone in the Christian community. And when Ananias is asked by God to pray, did you hear what the scripture says? He countered God's request. I don't blame him. He's understandably confused and outraged. I get that. I get Ananias' anger and skepticism. I understand that more than I understand his faithfulness. Sometimes it feels like the expansiveness of God's love goes too far. It asks too much of us. But Ananias makes the choice to trust God's love and God's call. And he goes and he prays for Saul. He knocks on his door, he enters, and 
by the prayer of Ananias, Saul is healed and baptized and welcomed into the community of believers. And in the end, Ananias trusted that even Saul, the one-man terror obsessed with obliterating these believing people, that even he belonged to God. Ananias takes in the very one who wanted to kill him. He takes in the very one who wanted to hurt him and his people. And he heals him. Because God shows him that God is even active in the life of his enemy. That's tough. I mean, that's really hard. That's hard because it calls into question and it challenges everything we think we know about the way the world works. A world that teaches us to view everything in the binary, us and them. Winners and losers, in and out. Because in our world, it's easy to go ahead and write off the other side, cast them aside. They don't count. They don't matter. It challenges everything that we come to know. Because it challenges the very notion of enemies. If God doesn't have enemies, if even Saul, even Saul belongs to God, Does that mean we too belong to the people that we demonize? Don't worry, I won't make you raise your hands on that. Do they belong to us? Oh. You know, when we hear uh, stories of this kind of truth, this expansiveness of God's love, we tend to remember them. We remember them in scripture, preachers love to preach on them, but when we hear and encounter them in the world, we tend to remember. They tend to take the world by storm because of their power and their sense of hope. It's certainly the case for a story that broke and took national attention back in the 1990s. I was alive then. And you're still there, it's good. It's a story about a man named Larry Trapp. You may remember this story, but it's one that we should all remember, especially this day. Larry Trapp was the Grand Dragon of the Nebraska Ku Klux Klan. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, Larry Trapp took great joy and harassing Jewish folks. He took great pleasure in harassing immigrants and people of color. Larry uh, made it his custom every single week to pick up the phone and make harassing phone calls to Jewish folks and to people of color and to leave long, hate-filled voicemails on their answering machines. So when a new rabbi arrived, Michael Weisner and his family 
They immediately became the target of Larry Trapp's hatred. They had just moved into the neighborhood when they received a, a voicemail on their answering machine. You'll be sorry you ever moved into that house, Jew boy. The KKK is watching you and your family, scum. It caused the Wisners to get a security system, understandably. And then one day over dinner, it occurred to them that they were obsessing over these voicemails, this hate mail that Larry Trapp was sending them. So Michael Wisner, Rabbi Michael Wisner's wife, Julie, said to them over dinner, what are we to do with this Larry Trapp and this racist? And Michael said, I don't know. She said, we could do the unconventional thing. We could try loving him. And Michael said, what do you mean we could try loving him? She said, we could answer the phone when he called. So every time that Larry Trapp made a phone call from that point forward, the Wisners returned it. If they weren't home and he left a voicemail, they always returned his call. And Michael Wisner began leaving him really long voicemails. But this was long before the day of cell phones. In order to leave a, a message on the answering machine, Michael Wisner would have to listen to 10 full minutes of hateful rhetoric before the sound of the tone beeped. Michael would wait 10 full minutes, and he would leave messages like this. Larry, you got to be tired of carrying around that much hate, man. No one should have to carry all that. Larry, you know there's a different way to, to live in this world. You know that there's a way uh, into love. Several months in, Michael uh, had made this phone call. He was into one of his uh, long voicemails when something strange occurred. Larry Trapp picked up the telephone. And they began talking, and Michael learned that Larry was a diabetic. Severe diabetic. In fact, he had had to have both of his legs amputated. He was in a wheelchair bound to this tiny apartment, and he lived alone where he lived alone for many years. And what Michael calls maybe not the easiest conversation of his life. He said at the end of our, that first phone call, when we actually were both on the phone, I said, hey, Larry, it must be really hard for you, man, getting out. You don't have legs. You're in a wheelchair. It must be really hard for you getting out, getting groceries. Can I go pick up groceries and drop them off by your apartment? Larry Trapp said, no, I got that covered, but thank you for asking. Larry Trapp points to that phone call and he said something changed in him that day. He got in his wheelchair and he went back to his room and he sat there and he said, for the first time in my life, someone took interest in me and asked how they could care for me. And the longer I sat there thinking about what Michael had said to me on the phone, can I get your groceries? It occurred to me how lonely I was. A month later, Larry picked up the phone and called the Wisners. Julie answered. 
Julie, this is uh, Larry Trapp. I wondered if Michael's there. He is. Can you hang on one second? Hey, Larry, it's Michael. Uh, what's going on? Michael, when you asked me to, uh, if I could, if you could bring groceries, something changed in me. I, 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 I got to tell you, man, I've been thinking about this every day since our call. I can't do it anymore. What do you mean, Larry? I can't go on living like this. Larry, what do you mean? I can't go on carrying the weight of hatred any longer. I want to live my life in a different way. I wondered if you and Julie would be willing to come to my house and meet me. Michael said, I'll talk to her and I'll call you back. Michael and Julie talked about it and they called Larry and said, yeah, we'd love to come over this afternoon. Their 16-year-old son apparently was the only adult who lived in the house because he thought it was a terrible idea. Their son said, what do you mean you're going to go to Larry Trapp's house? I've listened to those voicemails. What if it's a trap? And he hurts you. Michael and Julie said, I don't know. We got to go. And Julie said, you know, I got I to gotta bring him something. I got to bring him a peace offering. So she scoured the house and she was led to the jewelry box that was right there in their bedroom. She, she picked out this old silver ring that she had given Michael years before. She stuffed it in her pocket. She wrote, Larry traps a dress on a sticky note, put it on the kitchen counter, said to her son, if we're not back in four hours, call the police, this is the address. <laughs> they got in the car, they knocked on the door, and Larry Trapp wheeled himself there. And Michael Wisner reached out his hand. And Larry Trapp put his hand on top of Michael's, and they shook hands, and Larry looked down. And he saw it. It's like the scales fell from his eyes. He was wearing his grand dragon ring, shaking the rabbi's hand. And he said, Michael, I can't do it, man. He took his rings off and he put them right on the counter. He said, I can't wear those rings anymore. I can't do this way of life. I, I, I need you to talk to me. And Julie said, you can't wear those rings anymore, but it's funny, I brought you this old ring of Michael's. Will you wear this one? They were in that house for hours. Their son didn't have to call the police. They called him and said everything was okay. But they packed up Larry Trapp's apartment. They took his grand dragon robe. They took all of the hateful books out of the closet. They scoured the extra robes that were there for the recruits that Larry Trapp was going to recruit into the KKK. They took all of the paraphernalia and they loaded it up and they put it in the rabbi's car and they drove away. Then Michael and Julie started picking up Larry's groceries every week. On Saturdays, the whole family now, the son was thrilled about this. They went over to Larry Trapp's house and cleaned. <laughs> Several months after that, uh, Larry learned from his doctor his diabetes had reached a certain point and he only had a year to live. So uh, one Saturday morning, instead of cleaning the Wisners drove over and they packed up the rest of Larry's apartment and they loaded it into the rabbi's car and they drove it back to their house and Larry Trapp moved in upstairs. I swear to God, true story. 
One of the next nights, they were uh, at the dinner table. They were about to say the hamotzi, the, the blessing over the food. Something changed in Larry. He said it was like an electrical current went through his hands when they held hands. And he said, I want to know a love like that. Where does that kind of promise come from? Michael Wisner said, I'd love to open the Torah with you sometime. Larry Trapp converted to Judaism. After his conversion, uh, folks in the African-American community would call the Wisners all the time and say, what are you doing to that man in that house? Because Larry Trapp is calling us all the time now. But he's calling to apologize. He's asking for forgiveness. He's telling us that he found a different way to live this life. Larry Trapp died 10 months after he moved into the Wisner's house. They had his memorial service at the temple at the synagogue. Several members from the African-American community volunteered to give his eulogy. They told stories about the man they once knew and the man that they had come to know. Rabbi Michael Wisner preached his memorial service homily. And he never called Larry, Larry. Instead, he called him Brother Larry the whole time. Two of the sweetest words that Lincoln, Nebraska had ever heard. Brother Larry Trapp. Friends, who do you feel like threatens your way of life and your very belief system? Who's on the other side? Who can you not imagine is not included in the vastness of God's love and mercy? For my dear friends, even in these divided times, can you begin to trust, just begin, that those people belong to God and that God is even at work in their life? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, world without end, amen. Friends, in this new season of visioning, we use words from our forebears in faith who nearly 10 years ago used these words to vision for our congregation. So I invite you to stand in body and in spirit using words from the 2009 vision statement to affirm our faith. We will extend comfort and support through a program of mutual ministry involving members trained to carry the love of Christ 
into the lives of others. We will respond quickly and appropriately to a wide variety of needs. We will be a caring congregation where people are respected, included, loved, and valued. You may be seated. As we turn to God in prayer this day, a reminder that we have care letters outside of the north transept doors that you are invited to sign following the service. These letters go to members of our community who are in need of prayer, for joys and for concerns, so may your signature be a prayer to them. I have a couple of celebrations I'd like to highlight this morning. Uh, a celebration that we, uh, we just concluded PHPC Serves Week, and we had a number of folks from the congregation serve at various nonprofits around the city. So we give thanks for those hours of ministry and pray for those communities. Another celebration today, we celebrate with Meredith and Michael Roberts on the birth of their son this morning, Owen Armstrong Roberts, whose grandparents are very proud, Bertie and Robert Armstrong. And also, please keep in mind and in your prayers this week the family of Farrell King, who died over the weekend. His service will be Tuesday at 2 p.m. in the chapel. Let us pray. God of the changing seasons, as the leaves turn from green to gold and crimson, as the air becomes crisp and nightfall comes earlier, as we settle into the coolness of fall, we give you thanks. God, each season you transform the world again. Your work on earth is never done. We are reminded this day that you are at work in our lives, healing our bodies, wrapping us in comfort, challenging our expectations, and knitting us together with others. God, for the joy and hope that comes with transformation, we give you thanks. And at the same time, we know the pain and the sorrow that often accompany change. We know the awkwardness of growing up and getting older. We feel the weight of the world. We carry personal grief and violence and tragedy. We carry injustice and war. And many of us carry trauma in our very bodies. Some of us feel like we are walking around waiting for the scales to fall from our eyes, waiting to recognize ourselves anew. So God, all we ask is that you find us in the midst of our transformation. Send us friends and companions as we journey through this life. Remind us of your presence and keep us mindful of hope amidst change. We are grateful. We are hopeful. We are yours. In claiming these truths, let us lift our voices in collective prayer, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
recognizing that we belong to one another, we acknowledge that the pain and loss that siblings feel is our pain too. And right now, many of our siblings in North and South Carolina and elsewhere on the East Coast are still feeling the effects of Hurricane Florence. And so today, our Every Dollar Counts offering, those $1 bills that are placed in the offering plate, will benefit Presbyterian Disaster Assistance, which is delivering immediate aid to impacted areas and continues to work on the ground for many years to come. So in gratitude and compassion this morning, let us give of our tithes and our offerings.
friends, you may be seated because at this time I would like to invite you and Holmes forward to join me. Um, for our prayer of dedication today, we're going to dedicate our offering, but we are also going to uh, dedicate Ewan's ministry. Ewan has been our interim executive pastor for the last year, and so as is our custom, uh, this is his last Sunday with us, but we are going to present him a cross made from uh, some of the pecan wood from our pecan grove. Uh, Ewan has taken a new call to be an interim uh, just outside of Cincinnati, and so we are going to dedicate uh, the gifts that you have given today and dedicate Ewan and the gifts that he will go and share with the new congregation. So friends, let us pray. God, for the gift of this day and for the gifts of our very lives, we give great thanks. We give you great thanks for the gift of Ewan and for the many ministries that he has invested in here at Preston Hollow. We are grateful for his family, for his journey of faith, and for his call uh, in his life. We ask that you would be with him and guide him, that you would transform him and these gifts that you have given us this day, O oh God, that they would be used for your greater glory. For we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Ewan, thank you very much. like to invite forward all of our new members who are being welcomed into the family of faith to come forward and to stand on the chancel floor. This morning at 1035 in the sanctuary, the session held a covenant service in which we welcomed these new members into our family of faith, and we want to introduce you to them this morning. Would you please step forward when I call your name? Abigail Baker. Abigail moved to Dallas from Norman, Oklahoma, and she is involved in our young adult ministry here at PHPC, and she attends worship at five and works for Southwest Airlines. Abigail, we're so glad you're here. Tim Brenler. Tim is partner of PHPC, associate director of music, Michael Groff. He works for Fort Worth ISD, is involved in the music ministry, and he worked with Ann Nielsen to co-lead our Super Happy Fun Week this year. Tim, we're so glad you're with us. Clay Brainerd. Clay is the son of Reverend Mark Brainerd, the associate pastor for care here at Preston Hollow, and Clay is a senior at Plano West and already serves on our youth council. Clay, we're so glad you're with us. Michelle Brainerd. Michelle is the wife of Reverend Mark Brainerd, and she and her son, Clay, recently moved to Dallas from North Carolina. Michelle loves PHPC community and the strong female staff. Michelle, we're so glad you're with us. <laughs> Harry and B. Hawks. Harry and B. met, married, and had children in Dallas, and then moved back. They're back after 25 years, and we're so glad. They served as elders at First Presbyterian Church in Connecticut. Welcome. We're so glad you're with us. Tyler and Rachel Gillespie. Tyler and Rachel have a one-year-old son, Will, whose baptism is coming up. Tyler went to Baptist Seminary, and Rachel went to a Methodist seminary, and they have felt very welcomed here at Preston Hollow. We're so glad you guys are joining. <laughs> Patricia Donahue. Trish grew up Catholic and started attending PHPC in 2017, where she sang in our summer choir. She loves the music ministry and the sermons here at Preston Hollow. Patricia, we're so glad you're joining us. Dan and Virginia Dunaway. Dan works as a research dermatologist and Virginia is retired. They recently moved to Dallas from Memphis, Tennessee, and they will be 
officially welcomed as part of our Worship at Five service this evening. We're so glad Virginia and Dan are joining us. Margaret King. Margaret has been singing in the Sanctuary Choir for three years and loves the supportive community at PHPC. Margaret, we're so glad you're becoming part of this family of faith. Dana and Peggy Levinson Fuller are joining in absentia. Peggy and her husband have been attending PHPC for quite some time and they love the messages of inclusion here. Dr. Mary Wiley, Mary, Mary's husband Kevin is a PHPC member and they have three adult children. She works at Texas Health Presbyterian and volunteers with the flowery delivery team for which we're so grateful. Mary, welcome. Luke and Katie McElroy. Luke and Katie have two children, Emily and Natalie, and they love the children's ministry and inclusive and supportive community at PHBC. Guys, we're so glad you're here. And finally, John and Janie Roper. Janie is a retired school teacher, and John is a retired minister. They relocated to Dallas in June, and Jane grew up in Austin and went and worked to Mo Ranch. We're so glad you guys are with us. Friends, welcome. Friends, we are so grateful that you have uh, decided to join this family of faith, and we will be better because of you, and we are one giant family, and so it is good and right when we gather as family to give God great thanks. So let us pray. God, thank you so much for the gift of this day for each and every one of us who has been called 